Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to another famous section of what's known as the Sermon on the Plains, and a statement that Jesus makes that is, well, it's often quoted, uh, in particular by people who are perhaps getting called out for something or another, and it makes it appear, at least the way it's quoted, as if Jesus is advocating for, say, moral relativism, as in, you have your truth and I have mine, let's just live and let live, or as it is often expressed, no, 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 only God can judge me. And while it is true that God alone can see and judge the heart, and in turn that God alone has the power of life and death, that does not mean the rest of us are therein incapable of discernment and cannot tell truth from lie. Well, our passage is Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 37. Let me read it for us. These are Jesus' words. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we enter into this time in his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from your son, who is really in many ways explaining all of the Old Testament to us. He is certainly explaining your heart to us, and we pray then that through him and the power of spirit, our hearts might be shaped to yours. We pray for minds that are set on your word and defined by your word and feet and bodies that will follow after you wherever you might lead. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy towards us, and we pray that we would be a people just like that too. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we somewhat have been artificially going section by section uh, through the Sermon on the Plains, it's important to remember that this is a summary of one sermon given by Jesus all at one time. And as we've mentioned before, he was specifically teaching his apostles, but there was a large crowd surrounding him, which also uh, included other committed disciples, but probably people on the fence or people who were, were curious about him and, well, also his opponents and his enemies too. He begins the sermon back in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, by saying that there are essentially only two ways in life, the way of life found in him and the way of death that is found in rejection of him. That's what's being contrasted when he says, blessed are you, or uh, in turn, woe to you. And both ways, especially among his Jewish audience, are, are religious and both very well may involve godly practices such as prayer or fasting or, or synagogue worship or keeping the high holy feast days and, and so forth. Even so, even as, as the two ways may look similar, and this is the mistake modern critics often make in comparing 
Judaism and Islam and, and Christianity, well, they, the two ways cannot be more different because at the heart of the issue, the dividing line between the two ways is Jesus himself. So from the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke has made the point, it's, it's like he's beating a drum on this, that the promised Redeemer and Messiah, first promised to Eve and again promised to Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, all the major prophets, he has shown up in Jesus. This is why leading up to this sermon, Luke has, has shown Jesus, this is all his miracles, really all his teaching, as inaugurating the new covenant and thus a change of administration from Moses to Jesus. It's why John the Baptist, who is really the last prophet of the old covenant, wisely said, I must decrease and he must increase. So, so there are two ways set before the Jewish people at this moment, right? The old way of the old covenant, which, by the way, was very good. It was very good, but now with the coming of Christ, it had fulfilled its purposes and had become obsolete. Or it's the new way of the new covenant in Jesus Christ himself. Again, it's why Jesus says to his apostles and disciples, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. In contrast, uh, for those who sit in judgment over Jesus and reject him, mainly the scribes and Pharisees at this point, he says, woe to you. For you have received your consolation now, and it's not a consolation from God. So as we've mentioned multiple times throughout the series, this generation of Jewish leadership is very much like the wilderness generation that came out of Egypt and grumbled against God's provision. Likewise, they are also like the generation that refused God's provision through Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, much like we saw uh, in the evening series with Jonah and how he rejected God's provision of Nineveh. And instead, that generation chose to side with Egypt, which was, you absolutely did not side with spiritual slavery in Egypt. But they did in a desperate alliance to hold on to their land and to the temple, which of course led to exile and the first destruction of the temple. That's what Ezekiel and Daniel are dealing with. This generation that rejects Jesus does the exact same thing as the generation of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel's day. Only instead, they choose Rome over Jesus. Remember, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus' blood be on us and our children. And in turn, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was raised to the ground, effectively demonstrating to everyone who, who could tell that the end of the old covenant had come. It was over. And the permanence of the new covenant had shown up. Now, all of that stuff, all of that review is in view, not only when it comes to reading the Gospels as a whole, but also when we come to these famous statements of Jesus. And in turn, if you don't kind of have it in mind, don't understand the context, it's easy. It's so easy to misread what Jesus is saying here, in particular making him out to be a moral relativist, which he is not. All right, in verse 37, Jesus says, this is the famous line, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So again, he's contrasting those two ways. He's already told his apostles that because they enjoy the privilege of being the sons of God through him, something 
uh, the leader of, leadership of Israel assumed about themselves. In fact, they took that mantle upon themselves. Jesus' disciples are called to be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. We looked at that last week. Well, with verse 38, he deepens the calling by telling the disciples not just to forgive, and by the way, that's huge, but not just to forgive, but to be generous. It's similar to how last week he told them to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. That is, they have the privilege of interceding for their enemies. And he uses an interesting illustration to explain what he's after. So he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And as Arthur just comments, he says, Jesus uses the image of corn or grain poured into a vessel where it's pressed down and shaken to make more uh, room for more and more to the point of overflowing. Then it's poured into the fold of a garment, kind of like a, a pocket, and then taken home. So if you're not following that kind of agricultural uh, symbol, if you've ever been to Five Guys, you know exactly how this works, right? So if you've ever been to Five Guys Burgers and ordered fries, no matter the size of your order, they pour extra into the bag. So hat tip, if you ever go to Five Guys, just order a small. They're probably going to give you a large. And it's usually far more than what you paid for. That's the image, right? That's the image. That's how God is. So be generous as God is generous, and this is how, in turn, he will actually treat you. And that's been the promise all the way since Deuteronomy. Now, on the flip side of this, Amos, that famous prophet that nobody ever reads, Amos used a negative version of this illustration as a way of condemning what the people of his generation were doing during that time. That is, instead of being generous, they were defrauding the poor. They were not like God, their father. Well, Jesus continues, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is both a fascinating and a terrifying statement. So if you belong to God, you live in light of him, you learn to love and be merciful, forgiving, gracious like he is. That is, you will grow into maturity. That's the image. You will grow into maturity just as Noah and Abraham and Jacob were all described in those terms as having grown into maturity. Job, for example, was described as perfect. And that doesn't mean he had no sin. It meant that he himself had grown into maturity. And you see that being worked out throughout that book. And that's the goal of every Christian. That's, let me rephrase that. That's God's goal for every one of his people. So those who belong to God will be measured by God's standard. And that standard, thank God, will be met by Christ himself. Even so, just because we enjoy justification in Christ alone, as Paul makes clear in Romans, that does not mean that God does not expect us to live according to his word. Just go read Psalm 119. David thought it was a privilege to receive God's word and to be corrected by it and to grow into it. It's a blessing. And even more so, because we have received the promised spirit, we too are enabled to grow into this calling. That's the fruit of the spirit. But to those who do not belong to Christ, he will use whatever standard they live by as the, ma the ma measurement for judging them. So this is not as it's often taken to be, merely like, well, okay, if you're nitpicky, people are gonna be nitpicky with you. That is true. But that is not what he's after. Think of it this way. 
So when the question comes up about people who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel and how God judges them, well, God is incredibly fair. He judges their, their thoughts, their desires, their actions by their own standards, by their own standards. That's Romans 1 through 3. So when someone claims to be for tolerance and acceptance and openness and love, guess what standard God holds them to? So one way of thinking about it is that he's the ultimate referee. And if you want to play by the rules, say, of, of basketball, that's great. He's going to make every single call according to the rules of the game you set out. And as Paul makes clear, no one keeps their own standards. No, not, not one. And very quickly into the first quarter of that basketball game, everyone playing the game is going to blame the ref for not getting the calls they want. The reason is that's how spiritual blindness works. Now, to further get at the two ways, Jesus told them a parable. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So having eyes to see as opposed to spiritual blindness is an important theme in Luke. It's like what Simeon, if you remember, a devout man who was waiting on the consolation of Israel said when he saw Jesus as a baby and took him in his arms and blessed him. This is, this is Luke chapter two. He said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So often the judgment against God's people, and you read this all over the place, but you can see in Isaiah and Zechariah, is that though they had functioning ears and eyes, they could not spiritually hear and see. Already in the sermon, Jesus has described his disciples as the ones who hear him. Or as he says in John 10, my sheep know my voice. And now he's saying those who reject him, and he has in mind specifically Israel's uh, so-called shepherds, though they won't be the only ones, that they are blind and no better than the blind leading the blind. Further, Jesus says his disciples will not outstretch, they will not overtake, they will not be better than him. They will not uh, outreach his righteousness. I mean, how could they? But, but over time, like with Job, they will learn. They will learn wisdom and learn to love and be merciful as their Father in heaven is merciful. The gift of life in Jesus is, is among many other things, that we will mature at his own hand, that he will bring us through it, he will bring us to adulthood, and we will be like him. Well, we are now in a better position then to talk about that famous phrase, what Jesus means by judge not and you will not be judged. I think Jesus directly links judging to what he says in verses 41 and 42 towards the end of the passage. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So obviously there, there's a big difference between a speck and a log, but notice where Jesus places them in his illustration. It's in the eye. It's in the eye. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. He makes that statement within the context of that famous phrase, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So the, the basic idea, the eye is the lamp of the body, I think is actually rooted in God's own work in Genesis 1. God saw that his creation was good. That's entirely judgment language. That's judgment language. God is able to make right judgments because he is God, but because he is good. Humans are intended to make right judgments too in light of God and his word. So we are to have hearts like his heart. We are to love what he loves. We were intended, as opposed to all other creatures, to have dominion and in turn to have judgment. After all, dominion is kingship language. And kings make judgments. This is why in the next part of the Sermon on the Plains, Jesus says, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. So, by Genesis 3, even as Eve rightly saw that the fruit was desirable, she was deceived by the serpent, rejecting the word of God and in turn made a bad judgment. The pattern of discernment and seeing is, is repeated throughout Scripture. Just start looking for it. And he saw. You see it happen all the time. So those who have hearts that are not set on God will not have the eyes to see and make good and godly judgments. They will not bear good fruit, despite how they might appear or despite some of the good they might do for the community. And by the way, the Pharisees did a lot of good in their communities. They were grassroots conservatives and probably would have appealed to many of our sensibilities. So in our passage, the hypocrite then, as Jesus describes him, is the one who is spiritually blind. How can you see if you have a log in your eye, let alone how can you not notice that there is a log in your eye? But that's the nature of spiritual blindness. They think they can see. They think they make right judgments, but in reality, they are blind and produce bad fruit. Even so, keep in mind that Jesus is describing, at least initially here, people in community together. He's comparing two brothers. Think about that. He's comparing two brothers, and we should assume then, in our mind's eye, two Jewish men. So the difference between the two ways runs right through the middle of the Jewish people. And so even a hypocrite, the spiritually blind, still will probably have some semblance of proper religiousness, and yet because of his blindness, he is lost. So it's worth asking if Jesus ever specifically calls someone a hypocrite, or is he just talking generally here? And as it so happens, he does call people hypocrites, and he does it a lot. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus alludes to the scribes and Pharisees, the same opponents here in Luke have been making judgments on him. He alludes to them as hypocrites without naming them outright. 
But by Matthew 15, and especially when you get to his seven woes of Matthew 23, Jesus does not hold back for a second, and he straight up smacks them. He straight up calls them hypocrites and blind guides. I mean, it's no wonder they didn't crucify him on the spot, the way he spoke to them. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing here. And if we read Luke carefully, then we know they, that they are blind. Because unlike Simeon, who saw Jesus as a baby, they have not comprehended the consolation of Israel that is standing right in front of them. No, instead, they've called into question his miracles and his teaching and his practices. And soon enough, they're going to seek to kill him. Now, keep in mind, too, and we've talked about this this last fall, the scribes and Pharisees thought of themselves as the shepherds and gatekeepers of Israel. They, they took that role upon themselves. So they are the ones who, who kept the specks out of their brothers' and sisters' eyes, even as they missed, as Jesus says, the logs, the weightier matters of the law. And again, just go read Matthew 23 on your own time for how Jesus really understood them. So just think of how Saul, soon after named Paul by Jesus, went to work to cleanse the eye of Israel, culminating with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But there was another element to, to them as well, their legalism, which is famous. Their legalism, which, which Jesus again hammers in Matthew 23, was not so much a means for gaining salvation. No, as, as Grant McCaskill argues, and I talked about this this past fall, it was really a means of gaining status within the Jewish community and Judaism itself. So to them, like so many people today, righteousness was something you pursued because it gave you uh, social credit among whoever you think matters most. So Paul, for example, wasn't concerned with wealth and possessions as a way of gaining status. That, that tends to be how we do it in America. No, he was concerned with his reputation as what counts as a good Jew, and he was willing to kill for it. It's like folks who put uh, the secular creed uh, on, on yard signs. You know, it says, we believe black lives matter. No human is illegal. Love is love. Women's rights are human's rights. Science is real. Water is life, and justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I'm not trying to be rude, but I'm not exactly sure I know what any of that means. But why display that in your yard? Well, it's a symbol created in the likeness of other creeds. Like the Pharisees, they are signaling their virtue in order to secure status in their community. And of course, Christians do this sort of thing too. And so by calling out the secular creed in the sermon, I've maybe secured status in the minds of those people's opponents. Hopefully you can see how that works. Anything and everything can be used for righteous virtue signaling. It's why, as, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, the Pharisees and scribes were not concerned with the weightier matters of the law, with actually doing justice and loving mercy, you know, the things that Jesus points out in his sermon right here that his people are supposed to do. See, when you're spiritually blind, you will naturally elevate the specks because you're unable to see the logs. Why? Because pointing out the specks are not only easy, it's what gives you status. But with Jesus, all of that changes. 
With Jesus, there is no status to be gained because if you are the sons and daughters of God, what greater status can you possibly obtain? And when there is no status to be gained, when there's no reputation to be defended, when you know that this life is not all there is and you have life with God forever, you're free to be merciful and to forgive as God does, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Why? Because you're being formed into the image of his son and you are growing in maturity. Nobody says this stuff is easy. It's not. But it is a privilege that we are called to do this. So, can anyone, let alone Christians, make judgments? Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, there's not going to be a justice system, or police force, or schools, or referees, or, or any number of things. I mean, like last week, we have to read what Jesus says here in light of all of Scripture. And Jesus never said he came to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. After all, Jesus himself, again, just go read it. He made such harsh judgments about the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus was no hypocrite. As the reformers, I think, rightly saw, going back to the 1500s, and really they're just riffing on the early church, the mark of a true church. Now think about this. The mark of a true church includes the sound teaching of the word, which hopefully I'm doing right now, the right administration of the sacraments, which means we're not willy-nilly about them, and church discipline. Church discipline. That means that Christians are required to make judgments of a certain kind. We don't hesitate to speak the truth in love. At the same time, we must recognize that none of us are the judge over another person's life. And this, of course, is what the scribes and Pharisees did, in particular with Jesus. They took the position of judge and jury over Jesus. So from time to time, I get asked, do you think so-and-so is saved? Think they're gonna go to heaven? Or do you think so-and-so is actually in heaven? So like Solomon, or Cain, or Esau. And really the best answer I can ever give is, well, what does uh, their life seem to look like? Did they bear fruit? Well, maybe they did, maybe not. But even then, while we can judge the fruit, and we should, we cannot judge the soul that produced the fruit. So Solomon's life, for example, started off incredibly well. In fact, he, uh, he was given the name by God himself of Jedidiah, which means beloved by Yah, that is, beloved by Yahweh. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And yet, if you know anything about how his life went, it ended in abject, faithless, idolatrous failure. Only God can judge Solomon, even as it is clear that Solomon's actions were horrendous, and to say otherwise is a denial of the truth. That said, the temptation of every Christian community, and remember in the Sermon on the Plains, Jesus is ultimately describing what his, his people are supposed to be like. The temptation, somewhat like what happened with the churches in Corinth and Galatia, is to take on the demeanor, despite your doctrine, the demeanor of the scribes and Pharisees. That is, the temptation is to reject the weightier issues of the law and instead major in the specs. Now think about it this way. 
Flannery O'Connor once wrote, the operation of the church is entirely set up for the sinner, which creates much misunderstanding among the smug. And the smug, as Chad Bird comments, are not just those who say they have no sin, and I don't know anyone who's like that. The smug are also those who say they don't have as much sin as others, or that their own sins compared to those of other people are not nearly as serious and deadly. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount to see what Jesus thinks about that. And again, as, as Chad Bird comments, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that hasn't kept us from comparing distances. This, of course, is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did, and for us, like with the Pharisees, it never really has anything to do with our standing before God when we do this. Our smugness is always about our standing before other people. And we tend to think that smugness is reserved for the rich or elites looking down on lower economic classes. But you know what? That is false. It's false. Smugness knows no boundaries. And to be sure, in our times, and this denomination is not immune for this, there are real issues over serious sins. And so it's, it's sadly true that sometimes necessary for Christians to separate from one another. That's not what we're talking about. So while I can love and show kindness to people who deny the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I do, I cannot have table fellowship with them because we do not worship the same God, no matter how much they may claim otherwise. That means then that we are called neither to be tolerant nor to occupy God's seat of judgment. So, for example, the difference between forgiveness as Christ sees it and tolerance as it is so often touted today is that forgiveness requires the recognition of sin as defined by God's word and speaking truthfully about it. Tolerance does not. Tolerance is the moral relativism that denies judgment altogether. Likewise, the difference between repentance and tolerance is that repentance requires a person to admit that he was wrong that he was in sin, that he was at fault, that he was the one that caused the pain and suffering. And in light of this truth, and as a matter of consequence, he must turn away from himself. Tolerance doesn't do this because tolerance doesn't care. Tolerance is entirely about me. This is why our book of church order, which is really just a meditation on scripture of how to live uh, together in unity, it rightly says the goal of church discipline is for the glory of God to maintain the peace and purity of the church and to restore the sinner to God, which is for their good. So all of that requires the recognition of the truth and for judgment and to be merciful and kind. All of this done in love. But more often than not, Christians don't divide over the weightier matters of the law. We all know it, right? They, they, we separate over issues of conscience that are debatable. So just think of how many issues Christians have debated since 2020 that are not issues of law, the law of God, or even sound doctrine. They're just issues of conscience, right? So for good reason, the theological views exam that every candidate for ministry in this presbytery or any man transferring into this presbytery from another place must take includes questions like, what is your view on the use of tobacco and alcohol? Or, do you have any strong views on education? Public school versus private school versus homeschool. Now, there are 
no necessarily right answers to those questions, though if someone says, y'all being a flaming drunk is awesome, that's a problem. Right? No, these questions actually serve as a litmus test. How they answer them. And if they are making a log out of a speck, that's why they're there. It's like a bumper sticker I recently saw that said, real Christians keep the speed limit and then listed a number of Bible verses to make their case. Now, there's nothing wrong with having views and commitments on a wide range of issues, but like with masks or vaccines or presidential candidates or speed limits or educational policies, such things are not determinative of a person standing before God. And if they are, then we have a different gospel than the one we find in the New Testament. And again, as Chad Bird comments, beside the church doors is not a sin scale upon which everyone must weigh their respective iniquity weight as they go inside. So get the image there. The church operates on the assumption that everyone who steps on the scale is obese with evil. So because we have this shared gospel, because we have this shared unity in Christ, because we share in the same status as the sons and daughters of God, we are obligated, it's a privilege, to be merciful to each other, overlooking slights and specks, maybe especially when we disagree on hot-button issues, maybe less than hot-button issues, without sacrificing core doctrinal commitments, and in turn, smugness must never be a part of our fellowship, ever. So let the one who has ears to hear, hear. Judge not, lest you be judged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what terrifying words those are, and yet they are so freeing too. You have taught us that if we belong to you through your Son and the power of the Spirit, there is now no condemnation for us because of him. And so we rest on that, even as we want you to grow us in our sanctification, that we might, like Job or Abraham or Jacob, grow into maturity, that our lives might have a trajectory moving in mercifulness and in kindness and forgiveness. May we be that kind of people, we ask. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.